in light of who currently occupies the White House, having a person of color is an important counter narrative because this is someone who has proven himself to be xenophobic, bigoted, misogynistic, and deeply offensive to people of color. Welcome to Majority Minority, the show about people of color changing the face of politics. I'm Bill Douglas. And I'm Frank Ordonez. Before becoming president, Donald Trump tweeted out that it will be generations before a black person becomes president again. Yet now, three of the most talked about Democratic contenders for president are African American, including former Attorney General Eric Holder and Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. What we wanted to know is if Democrats could win the presidency without a black person on the ticket. And few have better insight into this than Stacey Abrams. Abrams is currently running for governor of Georgia, a race that features striking parallels to the national picture Democrats will be facing in 2020. She's grappling with running as a person of color in a Southern state, how Democrats can best appeal to culturally conservative white voters, and she's looking to create coalitions of entirely new voters. In the midst of all this, Abrams also wrote a new book about surviving as a black woman in politics called Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change. Inherent in being a minority is the notion that you have limited to what you're allowed to want. And that's wrong. But if I don't believe I should do it, why should you? The reality is that millions of black voters who voted for President Obama stayed home in 2016. So did many white Obama voters. But a new report by the Center of American Progress, the Bipartisan Policy Center, among others, predicts that Democrats could win in 2020 if they could just reignite the enthusiasm and turnout of black voters from 2012 when more than 65% of black voters turned out at the polls. Stick around on Majority Minority. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for joining us on Majority Minority. I appreciate the invitation. You have almost literally been ripping up the Democratic playbook, the political playbook that in the past has essentially played to moderates, kind of dipped into conservative circles, kind of grabbed the NRA vote as well. And you're focusing on something a bit different. Can you tell us why it's drawing the attention of ourselves, national attention like that? My approach to winning an election is to do the opposite of what has caused us to fail for the last 15 years. And what has happened for Democratic candidates in the past nearly two decades in Georgia is a tendency to go after Republicans who had once been Democrats. The challenge with that theory is that everyone was a Democrat. You're just not a Republican. And when the elections of 2002 happened and Republicans really felt comfortable and were able to elect their own governor, they switched parties. And unfortunately, the approach for the last 15 years has been to try to convince them to come back. I have watched that strategy fail. Because one of the challenges is that you then tend to compromise your values, compromise your principles, or if you're not compromising those internally, you compromise your language to appeal. And that has two effects. One is that those who are hardcore or who have decided that they are Republican, they are not going to be convinced by a flaccid ideology that is not strong enough. But the other part is that people who actually want you to speak for them overhear you having this conversation, and they don't believe you want them either. And so what happened to Democrats is that we keep losing elections by smaller and smaller margins, but by a significant enough amount that we know it's because people just don't vote. It's not that they're voting Republican, it's just they're not voting. How does that play out nationally as well? I mean, because what you're saying is some of the, you know, some of the criticism for against Hillary Clinton when she was running for president. Is there some national correlation? Are there some parallels? 
I, I think there is an authenticity issue that runs throughout our politics. And in Georgia in particular, the responsibility is to speak to the communities that we have. I'm running a campaign that is very intentionally talking about my values. I talk about criminal justice reform, about economic mobility, about needing to create good paying jobs, the importance of public education, but I do so from a very authentically progressive space. I'm not saying that if you're running for office in Idaho that you share exactly the same values or same value systems as we see in New York, but th- what I think voters want is someone who authentically tells them who they are so they can make a choice. And when you're trying to cater to a group that does not share your ideological beliefs, you are tempted to water down what you actually hold to be true. And that is a disincentive for people to vote for you. I'm very thoughtfully and intentionally talking about communities of color. That has not been the approach taken. There's always been a head nod from Democrats, and, and I am friends with a number of the candidates who've run. But... We have to center these communities in our conversations because they are a large portion of our population. But to do so does not mean to dismiss or isolate ourselves from the majority white community. We have to build a coalition. And what I'm trying to do is to say that this coalition can exist by having authentic, intentional conversations with everyone. Now, you're a state with a fairly sizable black population. Now, taking this to a national scale, President Trump, before he was elected, tweeted that because of President Obama, there wouldn't be another black president for generations. Uh, A, A, do you believe that? And and B, you're shaking your head. Go go, go ahead. I, I fundamentally disagree. I think that what President Obama's election demonstrated was the capacity of communities of color to organize themselves to nominate and elect candidates. And what we have to remember is that he did so in a time where whites were, I think, 65 to 70 percent of the voting population. And so I I think it is a wishful thinking on the part of President Trump that that would be so. If you look at the crop of potential candidates in 2020, you have a large number of communities of color who are represented in those phalanx of folks who are possibly going to run. What do you make of those candidates? Because, you know, just to finish what Bill's thought is you got Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Eric Holder, Eric Eric Holder, maybe maybe sort of kind of Oprah Winfrey. I mean, you've, you've got a range. And what I think is true is that Part of what has happened because of President Obama is that we've seen an acceleration of people of color taking on the roles and responsibilities that then position them for consideration for the presidency. And so counter to what Trump said, I think actually what President Obama did was open the floodgates that have allowed more people of color to actually stand in positions of power that allow them to be seen as credible and authentic candidates. And I'm excited about what that means for our body politic. Does the Democratic Party have to have... A a black person or a person of color on the ticket in order to win in 2020? I would say that it would be deeply disingenuous to not include a diverse ticket. And, And here's why. I mean, the same reason that LBJ was put on the ticket with John Kennedy. Regionalism matters. People want to know that they are reflected in what you do. And as communities of color become larger and larger portion of the American political system, they need to see themselves and their values reflected. That can happen with non-communities of color candidates, but it is an easier sell when someone can literally see themselves in the person who's running. Why is it so important to be able to see those similarities in, you know, in the candidate, that issue of sameness? In my book, Minority Leader, I talk about this issue. 
the reality is we make decisions based on I think sometimes a subconscious selfishness. We want to see ourselves reflected in our victories and in our values. And we use race and gender as shorthands. We know that if you have the same race, if you have the same gender, if you have the same zip code, you've probably had similar experiences, which means you're going to be more sympathetic to what I need, which is not to say that it's always going to be a one-to-one correlation because I've been very disappointed by people who look exactly like me. But... It is the easiest way to try to discern what will happen. And so that's one of the reasons you see the old boys club existed for a reason. They kept letting in people who look like them because they thought it would be the best way to guarantee their longevity. But for communities of color, for marginalized communities, this is our first entry to the game. And so I think we are within our rights to want to see ourselves because we want our experiences reflected in what's happening. Do you think the Democratic Party gets what you're saying? I mean, what, what you're saying, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that you, being the Democratic Party, need to pay attention to the black community, to communities of color. This is your voting block. These are the people that you're going to dance with or not dance with. It has to be in coalition with the majority community. If every person of color in Georgia voted for me, I would be incredibly happy and I would lose. I cannot win without coalition. Democrats cannot win without coalition. Sometimes we see coalition as a concession as opposed to a necessity. And I think the Democratic Party has to believe it is a necessity. And that means authentic engagement, early investment, and reflective values, reflective democracy that says, not only are we going to ask you for your votes, but we are going to make certain our policies deliver the things that you need, the reason you voted for us. Define concession. Sometimes it it feels as though communities of color are the last minute stop. Uh, If you're an African-American church, you'll get a visit. If you are a Latino community, you'll get a Spanglish ad, possibly. Uh, If you're Asian Pacific Islander, good luck if somebody talks to you because their presumption is that you're going to be uh, Republican unless you're on the East Coast or West Coast. My belief is that there has to be early engagement and deep investment. And that's one of the challenges that my campaign has really illuminated. We've spent money early talking to communities that are normally ignored until the last few weeks before an election. And for that, I've been lambasted by pundits and consultants for spending money when you only show up in the last two weeks and you bring some really famous people with you. But if that's the first time you've shown up, then your legitimate engagement is questioned. I want them to come. In fact, I'm excited. I've got some famous people coming down to Georgia, but they're coming after we've already been in the community, after we've done the groundwork. And that's what we have to do in democratic politics. Is there a bit of a double-edged sword though? Um, I mean, do you risk uh, patronizing um, by expecting people of color to vote for another person of color just because they're black or Hispanic? I believe that's the exact reason for this deep engagement, because there cannot be a presumption that you are going to get the vote simply because you look alike. We have to turn what might be a subliminal tendency into an authentic and sustained engagement. And the way you do that is by having real conversations, by showing these communities that you believe in them and that you think their votes are are as valuable as trying to convert Republican votes back into Democratic votes. So, so of the of the Democratic field that we've talked about, of Booker, of Kamala Harris, of Eric Holder, and Holder said he'll make a decision. I think by the fall, whether or not he will he will run. What do you think their prospects are, given the the, the formula that you're articulating? I think that my victory in this primary and my victory in November and my 
ascension to the governorship will demonstrate that this path is the viable path for Democrats. I think that for the candidates of color who are standing forward, especially those African-Americans, but I would say that we have to remember that there is a broader field of communities of color who are thinking about the presidency, that for each of them, it's an opportunity for them to be taken seriously and to be given very, very careful vetting. I went to a black women's college. I went to Spelman College. If you want to understand diversity, go to a school of all black women. You find there are lots of other things that make you different. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, I think that we as Americans have to accept and concede that race will always be a part of our narrative. It is embedded in how we were created. The person who currently occupies the White House makes certain we never forget it. But our opportunity is to see this as a way to expand our engagement. And so I believe that absolutely a person of color can be the nominee in 2020. And should any of them decide to do so, I think they should be given the very careful consideration of every person who's thinking about voting. What you're doing in Georgia and the success you're having, how is that emblematic of what the Democrats could learn nationally? Democrats tend to lose elections because we try to reverse engineer Republican behavior, but we reverse engineer the wrong behavior. We try to cater to Republican ideology or soften Democratic bona fides by trying to make it sound Republican. That doesn't work. People are smart. They know better. And if if we were to ask Democrats if we would do the same, if a Republican who has consistently voted against uh, climate change came and said, but maybe it is warmer outside, are people who are environmentalists suddenly going to be, oh, well, he agrees with me? No, of course not. Then why do we think the same thing would happen to Republicans trying to convince them to be Democrats? If you look at the Republicans who won during the 2010 wave and the 2014 wave, they had some far-reaching ideas. Um, that were completely incompatible with my entire worldview. But they won in part because people thought they were real. And that's what voters are looking for, someone who will actually speak up for them and reflect them. I did a piece a couple of days ago. It came out of uh, the book, and I talk about my personal debt, the fact that I owe you know $50,000 to the IRS. I'm on a payment plan. I filed a timely, and the IRS is getting their money. With the expectation that I knew I was going to have to report this when I started running. I knew I would have to tell people I'm still in debt from grad school and law school and college, that I have credit card debt because I take care of my family. And my expectation was that there would be some pushback. But what I've been fascinated by and heartened by is the outpouring of, oh, my God, she's just like me. People want real They want authenticity. They want to know that when you get into office, you are not going to forget why they sent you there. And Democrats have to believe our own truth again. We have to remember why we're Democrats. And that is not because we were Republican light. We're Democrats because we have a very specific ideological belief that helps people be better and have the freedom and opportunity to thrive. And that has to be our mantra. If you don't make it all the way to the Capitol in Georgia, uh, in Atlanta. That's crazy talk, but go ahead. Uh, (laughs) What message does that send to Democrats nationally? I believe that Georgia is a state that is ripe for Democratic victory. Uh, But it's a math question, and it's a question of whether my 
at that point, 18 month campaign was sufficient to overcome 15 years of torpor in our in our. No, party. I grew up in Atlanta. It's a you got a high bar, a very high bar. Well, it, it's it's lower than it used to be, and that that's part of it. The demographic changes that have happened throughout Georgia are fairly dramatic. And one of the challenges and one of the reasons our campaign started so early with our infrastructure building is that it hasn't happened in almost 20 years, which means we had to spend the primary building out capacity that in other states has been in place for years. Uh, If you compare Georgia to North Carolina, because of the investment of the Obama campaign in 08, uh, that was one of the pieces that helped Roy Cooper win in 2016. Georgia hasn't had that investment. And without it, we are trying to create something that we know in theory can exist, but hasn't been made manifest. So I think the lesson to be learned from my campaign is start early. And I think that 18 months out was early enough. My, my campaign is built on it. But if we, for some reason, don't manage to reach the finish line, I think the lesson to learn is that we need to keep running, that we need to start on you know November 7th doing it again and deepening our, our outreach. But it does sound like you feel that for Democrats nationally to be successful, to win in 2020, you need to have a black person or a person of color on the ticket in some form. I think that the best way to guarantee full and active engagement of voters across the state on a national scale is to have a a ticket that reflects all of America. And so I do think having a person of color is a strategic move that actually will generate turnout. But I'm not saying that you have to be a person of color to win. I think Democrats can win simply because that man will continue to talk. But I do think it argues to the best of who we are as Americans if we demonstrate a balanced ticket that that has and reflects the racial composition of our country. You've mentioned black women have to work harder in politics uh, and and numbers seem to bear that out. I mean, less than four percent of uh, the current members of Congress are black women, less than. 4% 4% uh, lawmakers in state houses across the country are, are black women. I think out of 60, 60, 61 women that Emily List has endorsed, only two are black women, including yourself. What does that bode for a candidate like Kamala Harris in 2020? I think Kamala Harris has demonstrated, because of her victory in California, but also her national profile, the ability to pull together diverse coalitions. The, the challenge of conversations about race is that it's a conversation about one thing or the other. My argument is that we are not that monolithic. Uh, there's a complicated nature to who we are as Americans that then adds you know, the tribalisms of region, of class, of gender. My point is you can't ignore race and that race is a marker that we use to tell ourselves stories about who we are. And one of the stories of America is that we are a multicultural society, a multiracial society. But the other part of it is, is that we can't do it alone. And we only win by adding people to our narrative and adding people to our uh, to our races. And I think that Kamala Harris is a perfect example. So is Corey. So is Eric. So is Julian. There are a number of folks who should be seen as emblematic of what we can become because they've all demonstrated an ability to bring together multiple conversations at once while still remaining authentic in their racial identity. Now, it, it seems like in, in 2016, it was Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton in the primaries. 12% of Sanders voters in the primary voted for Trump. So if, if you if you take that and you 
move it to 2020. Uh, what happens if Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren run and don't get the nomination and a Booker or a Harris or a Holder do? I mean, do you think they'll meet that same fate? I will say that part of the premise of my campaign is that we have an untapped market of capable voters who simply haven't heard from anyone. One of the reasons for our loss in 2016 was that for the 75,000, 77,000 who voted for Trump, you had hundreds of thousands who simply did not vote. In Georgia? Across the country. I mean, so when you add up the, the number of votes that Clinton lost in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, those voters were in Flint, Michigan. There were enough voters in Flint, Michigan for her to win Michigan. But the turnout in Michigan, in Flint, did not happen. There were enough voters in Milwaukee for her to win Wisconsin. There were enough voters in Philadelphia for her to win Pennsylvania. The challenge was these were people whose votes were discounted because they were unlikely voters. And we didn't do the work to actually turn them into active voters. Democrats have demonstrated on a national and local level a stronger willingness to turn out voters who disagree with us ideologically than to invest in converting you know, low propensity voters into active voters. It's more expensive to turn a low propensity voter into an active voter, but it's also the easier thing to do because they agree with our ideology. They just don't they don't believe it's true. And so. I, I actually reject the premise of the argument because it's not that there's a, a zero sum of voters that are out there. We have a potential pool of, of millions of eligible voters who simply have not had a reason to vote since 2008. Giving them someone to vote for, something to vote for, that's the way we win. If you only think that your universe are the voters who turn up every time, then yes, Democrats are going to continue to be in trouble. But if we agree that there is a vast pool of untapped potential you know, a blue ocean of voters. If we do the hard work on the national level, what I'm doing on the state level to engage those voters, we can win without having to contend with or compromise our values to get those missing voters. What's the challenge for the second person seeking to be the black president of the United States? The challenge is going to be to remind folks that one isn't enough, <laughs> that each person who stands before us asking for this opportunity brings a different life experience and a different life story. There's going to be both a discount because it's been done before, so the novelty is worn off. But there's also a premium because any person who didn't think everything that should have happened happened is going to think, well, why bother? And I think that's the importance of engaging more and more voters as early as we can. That's why I'm so excited about what I've seen happen with the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. What we're seeing from the DLCC and all of these flips argues for why someone of color can win in 2020, because what they're doing is flipping seats in Republican districts using a range of candidates who demonstrate that no matter what you look like and where you begin, there's a pathway to victory because what the DLCC is doing is talking to voters who are normally ignored or who don't participate in state legislative races. You've been, you've been described as kind of an obsessive consumer of political biographies. Yes. Bring what you're calling for into uh, some historic perspective. Is there precedent for what you're proposing to do? Because what you're saying, you know, has been very difficult for Democrats to pull off. What I'm saying has not, I think, been authentically tried by as many Democrats as who talk about it. 
President Obama's race was entirely premised on turning out new voters and doing so in coalition with existing voters. He built a new electorate. But the challenge was there was no infrastructure to sustain that new electorate. But if you go back to LBJ, um, LBJ ran campaigns but his approach was that he talked about issues that mattered to his community. He talked about rural electrification and got folks who didn't believe government would ever help them to actually turn out and vote because he got them something they needed. He leaned in and he said, tell me why you don't believe me. Tell me why you don't trust us. And then let me prove you wrong. What's the 2020 story that we're going to be reading about who the ticket was or who the ticket should be? Can you write or articulate for us who you think would be the successful ticket and that would merit one of these political biographies? I think the best ticket in 2020 will be a ticket that reflects the complex nature of where America will stand then. To put my partner's question another way, who do you like? I like them all. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, who, who can carry that message? Kamala Harris, Cory Booker? I like them all. Look, I've, I've been privileged to have uh, Senator Booker come down to help me. Uh, Secretary Castro was in town. I have received support from a number of folks who are thinking about running, and I say yes to all of them. Deftly put. <laughs> you must be running for office. <laughs> when you look at your race, when you look at what happened uh, in Alabama with Doug Jones and his, his election, the power of black women going to the polls, how important is that in 2020? How important is that for you? It's critical. Black women are in Georgia, 45% of the primary electorate. Uh, they are the largest portion of the Democratic Party, and their votes are vital in Georgia. I was communicating with a friend of mine who eventually invested in the race, and he asked, is it possible? And my answer back in August was, yes, it's possible for Doug Jones to win, but he can only win if there's, an, if there's a ground game that is out of the public eye, that is engaging communities of color, largely African-Americans through the black belt. And it has to be done in a way that does not get co-opted by anyone else. But that was in part because just the, the storm and drong around that race was just so loud that you had to get in there. But you also had to explain why it mattered. And... The two messages that I thought about that I think still resonate are one, that black folks, brown folks are under siege, that we have an occupant of the White House who has no respect for our lives, and that we have to have leaders who can push back against that. Black women have always understood that our success is yoked to the success of America. And so from my race, I'm being very intentional and very thoughtful about reaching out to black women. Uh, It helps that I am one, but that isn't a given because, uh, as the saying goes, uh, not all skinned folk are kinfolk. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) we may look alike, but I have to sell myself to everyone. And I think on the national level, if we can sustain on the Democratic Party side this conversation but match it to actual investment, match it to cultivation, match it to recruitment, and make certain that it runs the gamut, not just candidates, but campaign managers, staffers, that the consulting contracts that go out. One of the reasons Doug Jones won was that community groups that were staffed and led by black women received resources for the first time, and they proved that they could win. And that's one of the reasons in my campaign, I have a very robust, diverse community of folks working with me, because I know that it's not enough to give it lip service. You have to actually put money behind it. And if Democrats do that, Democrats can win. 
you make no bones about what you want to do. Um, you know, but there previously was a class of, of black politicians, minority politicians, who, you know, and not saying this pejoratively, you know, t- took a humble approach, you know, sort of like, you know, God willing and the river doesn't rise, you know, someday I will be. Um, but you sort of go in there like, yeah, I, I, I want to be. So I, I talk about this in my book, actually. <laughs> so there's a difference between humility and self-effacement. Humility says, I want something, I don't think I'm entitled to it, but I'm willing to work to get there, and I am grateful for the opportunity. Self-effacement says, I don't deserve it. If it happens, it happens. It's everyone else's good work, and I just happen to be there. That made sense in the context of the time where humility and self-effacement were seen as the same for people of color and for women. I believe that we have to start separating those things out. I am indeed, I I am grateful for the opportunity. There is absolutely nothing in my background that says I should be sitting here. I am the daughter of working class parents who both struggled to make it out of high school, make it into college, who in a single generation were able to move their children forward, but never, ever believed that there was an entitlement to it. And I don't believe I'm entitled to anything. I believe it's my responsibility to work, to plan, to rectify mistakes I make, but that's not the same as saying I don't want something. Why should you vote for someone who isn't really sure they deserve to do something? But there's still a segment of voter who might look at a minority candidate and, and, and say, who does that person think they are to do this? Yes. How do you convince them or do you take the time to convince them? My best answer is to tell you who I am, tell you what I want to do, tell you why I want to do it, and then point you to my record so you know I can get it done. That's what I'm doing in this campaign. I've been to parts of Georgia that have not seen Democrats in decades. Uh, And I did this as minority leader. Uh, When I was Democratic leader in the House, I went to areas of the state where we didn't have Democratic representation, in part because you can't get people to trust a community or an organization they've never seen. And so I went to parts of Georgia that are referred to as sundown communities, where after sundown, if you're a person of color, you need to get out. (laughs) But I did that because I wanted them to know that I care as much about their futures as I care about my own. But yeah, I I can be a bit off-putting. I understand that. Uh, But I think that uh, it's off-putting in a way that can be eventually quite lovely. (laughs) <laughs> uh, someone else who's, you know, been talked about in that way. What do you think of Oprah running for president? I think Oprah can do whatever she wants. Being able to literally see someone who had the same beginnings that I had in different, I mean, different story, but similar beginnings to watch her rise. If she wants to stand for the office of the presidency, I think Americans would be very grateful and very lucky to have someone like her who wants to have this conversation with us. Uh, you know, considering that all politics is local, you've been obviously running and been very open about running. What advice would you give to, um, you know, Oprah Booker? <laughs> Harris Holder. I mean, as they advise them not to listen to me, (laughs) as they embark or consider embarking. Look, I again, I think it all goes back to authenticity. What I've discovered, I, I was in Dahlonega, Georgia, which is not a hotbed of liberalism by anybody's metric. I'm having a conversation about gun safety with largely white rural voters. 
And I talked to them about the fact that I know how to shoot. I grew up in Mississippi. My, my dad hunts. I, I learned how to shoot a shotgun. My great-grandmother said, don't shoot anything you don't want to eat. I mean, that was her, her lesson for me. I can talk about those issues. And then I tell them, but I'm going to be the strongest advocate for gun safety in Georgia. And that is why I'm proud of my D and F ratings from the NRA. The number of people who've responded positively by saying, yeah, because they wanted to know I understood them. Their fear is that I want all their guns to disappear. No. But they understand if you own a weapon, truly responsible gun owners know that you have power and you need to be more careful than anyone. And so they first want to know that you understand them. And then they want to know you respect them. And then they want to know what you plan to do about it. And so what I would say to everyone running is agreement is not the goal. The goal is the people to believe that they can trust you to make decisions when they're not there to tell you what they want. That's what people are looking for in a politician. In the spirit of authenticity, do you think they should just say they're going to run? I think it's up to each person to decide what they're going to do. I approach my life with a fairly candid, you know, I'm trying to do something that has not been done before. So now is not a time for, you know, quiet self-mulling. Um, you know, that's not going to get me where I need to be. And where I need to be is in a position to help the communities I care about, to help Georgia get stronger, to help folks start to enlarge their notion of what a leader looks like. And to have real people who have real lives and real challenges be in positions of power to actually affect change. From one of our producers had a question about Beyonce performance at Coachella. Y'all hate us corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi catch my fly and my coffee fresh. What did you think of it? And what is kind of like the cultural significance of the empowerment of black women, you know, in U.S. politics? Are there parallels? Yeah. I mean, look, I back in 2016, I did a video for uh, Mike podcast about the Beyonce voter, which is sort of this black women or young women writ large who are independent, who have really rewritten the script for what success looks like. Um, I think her Coachella uh, extravaganza is yeah, yeah. Uh, it demonstrates just how much power she has over our pop culture. But it has political overtones because she doesn't cater to what she's told you're supposed to do to be successful. Uh, and she commands an army of followers who are independent thinkers. So the moment where she has all the violinists and all the dancers, it, she demonstrates how, again, how diverse we are, but how complex black womanhood is. But also that you know, we're pretty much everywhere and we can do everything. How does that play into U.S. politics? I think in U.S. politics, it's having candidates like Tashara Jones, who ran in Missouri. It's having candidates like Donna Edwards, who, when she ran for the Senate back in 16, we are not what's expected. Being able to break through barriers and defy odds, but to do so in a way that doesn't compromise who we are or what we want, but it's also not what people expect, is important because we are more than this sort of superficial um, stereotype. We are complicated people who share skin color and gender and often share goals, but we have different ways of accomplishing them and different ways of thinking about how you get to the finish line. Biography question. Should Kamala Harris run and win? If you win, you both you would have- this F word, but go ahead. You both would have the distinction of being the first HBCU graduates to 
be governor, the first HBCU graduate to be president. What traits or characteristics does an HBCU graduate bring to those positions? Historically, black colleges help ground you in a sense of where you stand in the scope of history. When you attend an HBCU, it is not an afterthought to learn about the first for almost everything. Um, But there's also a sense of obligation and engagement that is ingrained in you, that you are supposed to do something to serve, that you are supposed to engage the whole world, and that you do so from a position of pride in who you are and in your historical legacy. I think that what uh, Senator Harris and I share is that we come from spaces where we were trained to think of our racial differences as additive and not as a deficit. And that it creates a critical amount of confidence, not arrogance, but a confidence that your ability to engage the world is no less than anyone else's. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for your time. We'll be paying attention to your primary and uh, maybe we'll have you back here when you're running for something. I look forward to returning after my successful venture as governor. Thank Thank you you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both. This has been delightful. You know, Abrams is a trailblazer. She was the first minority leader in the Georgia State Legislature, and now she wants to become the first African-American woman governor in the country. Yeah, there's no doubt. And the way she's doing it is really fascinating to watch. She's literally ripping up the Democratic playbook. She's playing by different rules. She is targeting black and minority voters in the South, something that Democrats have not necessarily done and certainly haven't done as aggressively as she wants to do. As she says, Democrats have only done this by playing lip service. She wants to actually go talk to them and mobilize them to vote. And she wants the party to follow her lead. Thanks very much to former state representative Stacey Abrams for being on our show. And thanks to Jordan Marie Smith, Davin Coburn, and executive producer Ayanna Morali for putting this episode together. We're glad to be back for season three and want to hear what you think. Find Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts and give us a review. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And we'll see you again on Majority Minority.